Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. This week, I'm joined by eating disorder therapist Manal Muller. It was really lovely to speak to Manal this week about eating disorders through the lens of faith and spirituality and how elements like faith, spirituality and religion can both impact the development of an eating disorder but also be the change that allows somebody to recover from their eating disorder and to promote health and well-being within their life. It was really, really interesting to explore this and I'm really grateful from now being so open to the conversation and allowing us to dig deep into how these things can impact somebody's own journey. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, I can't remember, are you based in the UK? Are you out of the UK? I'm not based in the UK anymore. I I used to ah. be based in the UK, uh, but I'm back in Dubai where I grew up and stuff. Oh, yeah. nice. So what's the time for you? It's almost 9.15, like 9.12 right now. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. You should be resting. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm, I'm used to kind of the one-off kind of going yeah. a bit later in the evening because I still oh. work in the UK um, part-time. Got you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm actually coming to Dubai on Saturday uh, because I'm oh. flying to Indonesia. Unfortunately, we're not stopping, um, but okay. that's where my like layover is. Um, yeah, I didn't book the flights, but I said to my partner, I was like, "Why are we not spending time there? Like, we're yeah. going all that way, and yeah. we're we're literally flying into the airport and then out again." So that is a massive shame. Oh, yeah. oh Indonesia is amazing. I've been yes. so it's, it's it's lovely. Food's amazing. It's all good. Yeah. Oh, amazing. You'll have to. Uh, I won't obviously take up the podcast asking for recommendations because <laughs> it's not a travel podcast. But you have to tell me what you got up to. Um, because sure. I, I have massive FOMO when I go to places so I don't like to miss out on anything. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's really nice that we've got that mutual connection of first steps. Um, so that's lovely yeah. that um, we have that. Um, but we're going to talk a bit about faith and spirituality today and, and the link to eating disorders. So I wondered if, I guess, to start with, um, do you want to talk about like your approach to working with clients? And I think when we kind of set it out an issue we're going to talk about like the five pillars of health and how you incorporate that so I don't know whether you want to weave that into kind of the introduction as well yeah yeah of course um so my approach to eating disorders I think first of all it starts with my core training which is uh, integrative and that just means that I take a few different types of therapy and integrate them to support the client um so that would be uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is you know fairly common in the UK. Uh, it's about how our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are linked together. Um, the other one's attachment theory, and that's about how our childhood impacts our life in a lot of ways. Um, and the last one is the Boston-centered approach, which I, I think the kind of simplest way to define that is to say that really the client is in the driver's seat for the process, the therapeutic process. Um, 
And I think that's really the most important part of supporting a client with an eating disorder. Um, you know, we often see a link with control um, where, you know, actually giving, you know, the person that's sitting in front of you that sense of control of, you know, we don't have to go in a direction that doesn't feel safe for you or that doesn't feel that you don't feel ready for. I think that can be really helpful for someone um, especially, you know, just kind of new to treatment. Um, as for, I, I guess, five pillars of health, um, just to name them. So we have sleep, nutrition, movement, um, uh, connection, so positive social connection and stress management. Um, I think depending on people's beliefs, faith and spirituality could really be a part of all of those five uh, pillars of health. Um, I think, you know, I, I like to think of those pillars of health as like a bit of a domino effect where it's like, you know, if, if you get the sound sleep, you wake up feeling less anxious, less stressed. Um, you know, if, if you get that movement in, you know, if you are feeling some level of stress or anxiety, that it kind of allows you to let go of that a little bit as well, clears your mind, gives you those endorphins. Um, so, you know, when we're thinking of those pillars, it's, you know, it's, it's not that we have to work on all five of them together. It's we start with one and, you know, the others start to fall into place as well. Yeah. yeah. Something that really stood out to me when you were talking then was the the approach that you have to treatment and the fact that you kind of hand that sort of control or kind of the direction of the treatment over to the patient and kind of say you know it's, it's what you're ready for right now and I think that is something that is so unbelievably important in treatment but it's often sort of I think in some respects, when you're not in private treatment, it's very prescriptive in the sense of, you know, you've got an eating disorder, then well, this is mm. what we do first, this is what we do second. And, you know, if that doesn't fit for you, then that's that's mm. your issue rather than an issue mm. with the treatment process. So it's it's amazing that you're able to kind of have that adaptable approach and, and recognise that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think it is uh, so hard, really, to, you know, come into something and, I think sometimes just be told that this is, you know, this is all we have room for, mm. right? We, we, we can't go anywhere else. Um, but I also, you know, appreciate that some clients do respond really well to structure. I think it's just the the level of rigidity there where it's like, yes, mm. that's structure, but we can also move in ways that you want to move in. Yeah. And in a sense, and as I'm saying this, I'm kind of thinking, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> but um, I think it's a good thing, kind of handing over that control to somebody. Because, uh, you know, in, in my experience, my eating disorder has very much been about controlling the controllable and then that, like, supports the uncontrollable. Um, and I know that's not the case for everybody, like, but there is, you know, a common theme that people do experience it because of control. And I'm almost thinking because you kind of hand the drive hand the like steering wheel over to the patient in terms of the direction it's almost that sensation of control and yeah. in a sense that relieves the need for control in the eating disorder and when I was thinking that in my head I was like is that a good thing though but in actual fact I think it is because 
I've always thought with eating disorder behaviours, it's not necessarily that the thing that drives them is a negative, you know, perfectionism or whatever. Yeah. They can actually be quite useful. Um, but it's being able yeah. to balance them and use them appropriately. Um, I, I think there's definitely layers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially when... Um, you know, especially when you said perfectionism, actually, I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I think for me you know, a cultural standpoint and, you know, even within society, there's certainly certain behaviors that are more rewarded. Um, when I, I think the internal struggle is what's hidden sometimes. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest uh, things for me to learn whilst I was on training and, I, you know, as someone who certainly struggles with perfectionistic traits myself, um, what I learned, at least through supervision, was that sometimes perfectionism is really our kind of armor from low self-esteem you know where it's like you know it's that um you know it's never going to be good enough so i need to try and try and try or it can really go the other way around which is it's never going to be good enough why should i even start and that shows up as procrastination um so it can really go in either direction but it's it's that armor to protect us from you know the shame of this isn't going to be good enough, or I don't think I'm good enough. Um, and that was a hard pill for me to swallow as well. So I, you know, I sit there sometimes in sessions, and I'm like, I, I hope my client is ready to hear that because it's <laughs> tough. Yeah, I think it's um, it, it's it's a very interesting point, and for me, working through kind of being enough and things like that is something that's really prominent in my therapy right now. Um, <laughs> And you're so right in that when you don't necessarily feel enough or that, Mm. you know, what you're going to be doing is enough, you do go either way of either, okay, right now then, okay, so I don't think I'm going to be enough, therefore I have to control everything. And, like, I Mm. can't stop. Like, I'm so, like, like, hyper aware of this intense emotion to just control everything. Mm. Or I just kind of detract from everything and I like resort into myself and just kind of you know everything's fine because I'm just hidden in this little corner and all I have to think about now is the eating disorder behaviors or whatever yeah and so you either like fully immerse yourself or you completely disengage um and again it's that perfectionism of that all or nothing I think yeah 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 a hundred percent. The all or nothing thinking uh, is is so prevalent. Right? It keeps coming up. Um, I, I think, you know, especially with eating disorders as well, we see a lot of overlap with neurodivergence. Um, and, and that's where really the all or nothing thinking is. Um, we, we see that a lot, a lot more, actually, especially when it overlaps with neurodivergence. But yeah it's uh that's you know if if there were kind of you know the first five things that i would want to say to someone like as part of psychoeducation you know helping them learn about what's going on all or nothing would be one of them for sure yeah absolutely and i guess with with that in mind we spoke about sort of the five pillars of health before Mm -hmm. we're thinking about that sort of perfectionistic tendency and that all or nothing Mm -hmm. 
for me, it feels like an area that you could potentially be like, okay, so now I have these things that I need to, you know, in order to get better, I now have to be perfect at these things. So how do you navigate that with clients to ensure that, you know, what they're doing is actually supporting them rather than as like, you know, more pressure to have the perfect sleep routine and have the perfect exercise routine and all of that? Yeah. Um, I think the most important thing is starting small. Um, what we see with really any kind of perfectionism is that strong critical voice, which is, you know, always kind of bullying you into doing what needs to be done or, um, you know, pushing you in a certain direction. I think starting small in a way that can is actually that where it's possible to actually have that behavior be consistent. Um, but also, you know, it's it's not just in the pillars of health that perfectionism can literally show up in therapy where it's like, I need to be the perfect client. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I see that so much, right? Where it's like, uh, it's this idea that at the end of the session or at the end of, the, you know, how many of the sessions, there's going to be this big ceremony where it's like, oh, you've been so great. And, you know, this is your kind of certificate, you know, go on. <laughs> um and and sometimes it's it's about really telling the you know the you know the, the person that's sitting in front of you that it's you know it's okay to not be perfect that that version of us really cannot exist um and when we show up in therapy we have to show up with our imperfection you know if 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 we sh- if we, if everything's great then we wouldn't need the support um but also no one's perfect you know I, I think we all need some version of support um in you know at some point in our lives um but why I, I think something that I like to do sometimes is is a little bit of self-disclosure of like showing my clients how I'm not perfect either mm-hmm. um you know this idea that um you know someone who works in kind of health and social care might have their health and well-being just sorted and and, and really that, that's not the case um so uh, you know allowing them to see or really modeling for people that um you know that I do struggle with perfectionistic traits sometimes that I um you know I'm still figuring it out and and, and that's just human yeah 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 I think that's really important um and I, I really liked that you mentioned about like, you know, being the perfect patient or client and, you know, having everything figured out because it's like, well, there's a reason you sat in that chair and that's because everything's not figured out and you need help with that. Um, but I think it can often be difficult to kind of show those vulnerabilities. So I think by having the person opposite you show their vulnerabilities, it can be really, really important. Um, but I wanted to come on to sort of like, the spirituality and the faith um Mm -hmm. conversation with you and I wanted to discuss sort of you know both how that could be positive and negative in terms of the development of any sort of then recovery as well so I guess if we start with sort of the negative because then we can go on to the nice bit um do you think there's like particular factors that could lead to somebody developing an eating disorder within their spirituality, their faith, that sort of thing? Um, I I haven't seen 
the development of an eating disorder in terms of faith and spirituality, but I have seen um, how it might aid it. Um, okay. So, you know, in, in a lot of, um, I think, belief systems, you know, there there will be a version of, uh, you know, giving up some things. So that could be in the form of uh, food, that could be in the form of, uh, kind of worldly desires, you know, there's there's really many versions of that. Um, but when I think about, especially, you know, the the practices where you give up food, be it for a certain amount of time or certain types of foods, I think that can really quickly fall into um, almost, you know, if, if there's existing eating disorder behaviors, that that can then be you know, that, that, that can then just make it even more possible to do without anyone actually thinking that something's off there. Um, I, you know, for me, so I'm I'm Muslim, like I've, I've seen this within the Muslim community as well, where um, for a lot of people, they'll use uh, Ramadan, where you fast from uh, really uh, dawn to dusk, um, but you do need to eat the pre-dawn meal and you do need to eat post sunset and everything. Um, but I, I think for a lot of people, they, you know, especially where there's existing uh, disordered eating um, or some of those behaviors, that it just becomes, you know, another opportunity to to then not eat or to then, um, I guess, restrict even more than they would usually. Um, well, or or it could go from just, you know. I guess restricting certain foods to not eating at all and then that becomes their kind of one month so i i think certainly it can aid um those behaviors sometimes um but but i think what's hard there to, to figure out is that you know to, we, we may not really have that much really mental health literacy to see what an eating disorder behavior is. Um, you know, the one person can, you know, fast the, the dawn to dusk and have it be really, you know, intentional about faith and spirituality. And for another person, really, it, it might be their disordered behavior. So I think it's important to look for the other signs as well. Um, and just, I, I think, as a as a community, as a as a culture, develop that mental health literacy to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I think you're so right in that it's a very difficult one to kind of draw the line between, um, mm -hmm. because you know we've done podcasts before where we've discussed Ramadan, and for some individuals, it's you know it is part of their religious practice, and you know it's a completely healthy thing for them to be doing. Um, but it's then equally a very difficult time for some individuals that struggle with disordered eating because the behaviours that are causing so much distress to them day in day out are then being glorified and are being you know yeah. recommended, uh, or you know that's kind of what they're told to do, and then if you can't engage with that it's almost you know the the shame and the you yeah, know yeah. if religion and uh, and faith is something that's so important to you to then not be able to engage i can imagine can be quite lonely and isolating which then kind of increases those feelings around the eating mm -hmm. disorder um yeah but i've definitely heard 
a lot in that, you know, it's a very difficult one to navigate because you can't really, you know, it's very difficult to pick pin, um, pick apart, you know, am I doing this because I want mm. to, you know, follow my religious um, and cultural practices or am I doing this because of the eating disorder? And yeah. Even then, when there's maybe not that much awareness about it, I've heard people say, you know, I realized that I could go for prolonged periods of time and not eat. And so mm-hmm. then I was fasting after Ramadan as well. And it, it sort of developed those thoughts in my head of, you know, why am I not doing this more often? Um, mm-hmm. But it's hard when it's something that is so important to you as well. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you make such an excellent point about. Um you know, the, the feelings of isolation or the shame that can come with it. Um, I, I think especially, you know, when you think of more collectivist cultures where it's uh, really about, um, you know, following the group and um, I guess being loyal to that group, um, it, it, it can feel really shameful to, to, not doing what the, to not do what the rest of the group is doing. Um, even though, you know, from a religious perspective, if you're not well, you you don't need to fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think we miss out on that sometimes because, you know, our, our understanding of being well is very much tied to the physical, not necessarily the mental or really both. Um, yeah, I, I think it is quite difficult even, you know, even for people that might be struggling with, um, you know, binge eating um, or really, you know, even others because, you know, even though Ramadan is about fasting, you are often surrounded by food mm-hmm. when it is time to eat. And and a lot of food sometimes, you know, depending on, um, you know, what your, you know, culture is like, especially around your family and things. Um, and that can be quite anxiety provoking for someone that's, you know, in recovery or struggling. Um, it's it really is, is a lot to be surrounded by that much food for thirty days, um, yeah. where you know it can it, it can be part of social gatherings as well. Then, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I think that's the difficult thing, isn't it? In that kind of restrict binge cycle that people Mm. might struggle with is kind of normal during that time and I think Mm. that's often something that is difficult is when the behaviors that you're struggling with are kind of normalized and just kind of accepted as what it is because then you feel like well why am I struggling with this when everybody else seems to be able to cope with it um and I guess just on that topic not specific to to Ramadan but you know if, if somebody is finding that they're kind of you know maybe it's their religion or culture or whatever is almost promoting the behaviors or the feelings that they're having what would your advice be to sort of navigate having that conversation with someone because I think it it would be really really hard um when it's something that is like I've said before so important and and followed by so many yeah yeah I I think you know first and foremost um especially when it comes to faith and spirituality i think the intention is really important mm-hmm. um you know what is what is what is pushing you to um to be part of this practice um you know the intention setting is actually a very important part of a lot of um 
just you know faith traditions um so I, I would think intention but also educating yourself on you know what is the what is the um really the reason behind these practices right are we you know i i think you know for a lot of us we think you know practices like ramadan and you know other fasting uh you know in other beliefs as well is really just about the food but you know it's it's actually not there's so much more that you actually have to think about it's about you know purifying your um your uh your beliefs your uh character you know it's 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 about you know being a better person throughout the month um and and i think it's 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 also about thinking of okay if you're not able to be part of some of the the food side of the practices you know how can we focus on the others right you know what is it that we can control um you know we, we do this really interesting exercise called the circles of control where we you know we draw the person in the middle and we think okay what is in your control and what is out of your control and you know let's just write down anything and everything that you can think of and you know stick it up okay the moment you start to feel out of control with some of those things that you've already written down in that circle come back to that inner circle which is in your control um so um because it can get really overwhelming you know thinking of uh, everything that something like um fasting entails or so, you know those cultural practices where it's not just you having to follow it but you might have to follow it as a group or there might be gatherings related to that or you know it might be you know for a whole month um i i think definitely think of intentions you know educate yourself on why that's a practice what's the goal for that um and try to engage in what you can control rather than what you can't yeah i love the idea of the control circles i think i might try mm. that myself um yeah. in order to really you know understand you know what is it right now that you can control and what you know is completely out of your control um because at the end of the day you know it's very easy to say but there is no point wasting your energy on things that you can't control um and and that's really difficult but i think that comes into everyday life and not just not Absolutely. just eating disorders um so definitely a useful kind of piece of advice there and i think you know there's a, a reason <laughs> why so many people do follow specific um, religions or, or cultures or faiths so in your sort of from your perspective what positives do you find you know what positives have you seen with patients um in terms of the um spirituality and faith and what that's mm-hmm. had on their recovery yeah um i think you know there, there's really variations of that depending on um how much one relies on faith and spirituality for their recovery um i think i've seen that especially when we think of uh, body image uh, difficulties or um you know and there's the spectrum of that it can go up to body dysmorphia as well but from a you know from the lens of spirituality sometimes viewing it as you know just there's a there's a sense of gratitude for the way that we are made that we are unique um 
that we have, you know, certainly, you know, when you struggle with an eating disorder, um, your body might might not function in the way that you would like it to, but it's but it's about identifying the things that it can still do for you, um, and that it has done for you all of those years. Um, I think that sense of gratitude can be really healing for a lot of people. Um, I think it can also uh, accelerate recovery sometimes, where you know it's it's about. Um, I, I guess treating your body in a way where you you want to continue to feel that sense of gratitude, uh, taking care of yourself. Um, it can also show up when when we think of comparison with body image issues. So, um, you know, we we were made in a certain way uh, for a reason, and that you know if we all looked exactly the same, or if we all were exactly the same, we wouldn't have this. I guess this uh, you know, the, the the beauty that is in diversity uh, in our world, um, and and I think that's really beautiful to think of in a very deep way. The way that we're fashioned, um, with I, I think for a lot of people, especially with um, you know the the number of thoughts that we can have about food or body image or you know things we want to control, you know. It, there was a recent study that came out that said we have about 6,000 thoughts a day, um, wow. which is a lot, yeah. And, and and I think someone that might be struggling with food and body image, you know, the percentage of those thoughts that are about food and the way that they look. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, faith traditions have a meditative practice of mm-hmm. sorts. Um, I, I think we... Uh, we might call it meditation, but it looks a little bit different in every practice. Um, but it serves the same purpose, which is, you know, having to focus on something, be it, you know, chanting something, be it, um, uh, you know, reading something that is, uh, you know, there are verses of, of, of a holy book. But it's about focusing on something enough to you know, as you have those thoughts come up that you still are able to unhook from them and back and, and mm-hmm. focus back on what you're like reading or chanting. Um, and, and really that that's meditation as we understand it. It's, it's about allowing those thoughts to flow. It's not that we don't have any thoughts come up, but it's just that we're able to bring our focus back. So um, that, that can really help with reducing the... Just, just how many thoughts we have, because it allows us to develop our kind of focus. Uh, but also, it, it can be helpful to know that you know we don't have to believe every passing thought that we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's such an important thing to say. Is I've tried meditating so many times myself. I can't do it. I just my thoughts keep spiralizing, and it's too mm-hmm. distracting. And then my friend who uh, is a health well-being coach like that's the whole point you're supposed mm. to have lots of thoughts we all have lots of thoughts it's about bringing yourself back and I think for me the the thing that stands out in terms of how spirituality and faith could support recovery is a lot of the time in recovery from eating disorder someone's kind of whole self is encompassed by their eating disorder and mm-hmm. so when they're in recovery that 
it feels like a massive loss in terms of like who am I like what do I believe in like you know what am I going to do with my spare time because it was filled with all these thoughts or behaviors before and I think for me it it's almost something to almost have a purpose to have something Mm -hmm. to kind of have faith in and and, and believe in and like dedicate yourself to in I don't know whether I'm getting it across in the right way that I mean to be, but um, yeah, to really sort of transition from, and not saying that eating disorders are like a, a faith or a whatever, but they do kind of take over you. So yeah, to have right. something almost as a replacement in a way of, you know, I'm really not getting this across yeah. very well. <laughs> I, I just... I might. I, I think I get what you're saying. So I, I think eating. Maybe what you're trying to say is that eating disorders can be so consuming mm-hmm. that you know having a a purpose of sorts, be it uh, you know in any form linked mm-hmm. to faith and spirituality, can give us a direction in a way to yes. to, look, to look outside of ourselves rather than just. Yeah. yeah absolutely and I think it, you, you knock the nail on the head it's it's looking outside of yourself rather than you know just internally and mm. I think having something that means so much to you um, and in a sense almost like a distraction or like a refocus I guess on like what's important mm. to you and yeah. um, you know what you what you want from your life and also with sort of like spirituality and faith I think that there's a big community sense there as well and where our eating yeah. disorders can be so isolating yeah. um and if there is a community then it's often quite a toxic one uh if yeah. what well, people are in any sort of not in recovery if you have yeah. you know a religion or a faith and then there's a group of you that celebrate that together it, it i can imagine would give so much positive energy that you know you wouldn't feel like you need to lean into the eating disorder for that purpose or those sort of like emotional um needs anymore absolutely absolutely i think um you know it, it goes back a little bit to the kind of pillars of health where social connections really important um and having that be a practice you know uh you know in some faiths you know you might uh say you know go to your place of worship you know every day of uh sorry once every week you know that that kind of practice where even there is a um you know that there's a consistency there there's a predictability there of okay we're gonna do this every uh say friday or every sunday you know um that in itself knowing that you have that community to rely on even if it's just one day of the week can be so helpful um with with eating disorders you know we see a lot of anxiety and anxiety you know if we want to try to regulate that through the people around us it's about building um some form of consistency and predictability so you know i always say yes uh, we can try really hard to regulate our emotions to regulate our anxiety but people regulate our emotions and our anxiety as well so you know, you might have the, you know, the friend that helps you feel really safe and you don't know why. But it's probably because they're really consistent and they're predictable in their behavior. And you might feel really anxious around some people and it's because they're really unpredictable uh, and you don't know what's coming next. 
yeah. having that sense of routine be it with um with your community with prayer you know whatever that is but that that routine that consistency is really really good for us to 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 keep our anxiety at bay which is deeply linked with eating disorders as well yeah i think you've not absolutely knocked the nail on the head there it's having something that you can always rely on yeah. and that gives you structure and purpose and helps you to feel safe i think that's something that people often go to an eating disorder and it's those false promises that it can give you that and it, it actually yeah. doesn't um so to be able to have that you know through your recovery as something that is there for you all the time when you you know it's it's something that yes it could be a community but also like you just said whether it's a pair or a meditation it's something that you can lean into when you need it and that can be at any moment um yeah. so yeah. I think that that feels so important and and really nice that that is that can have such a positive impact on on people i just wonder if you've had any patients um that you've kind of seen spirituality and faith be such a core part of their recovery if there was anything that you wanted to share yeah um um i i think something i've come across uh is you know we, we always think of just reminders especially kind of visual cues um and i've seen this with you know a few times in my work where um you know so you know clients might put up certain verses or certain um i guess prayers um like up on their wall that remind them of you know what you were talking about earlier that you know there is more to there's more to life than just them just being stuck in their own thoughts um there's there's also been uh you know some reminders about uh you know again more sig- i guess paying more attention to character rather than the body that we exist in um just to remind them that you know yes you can look at yourself in the mirror and i think you know find all of these flaws but you know when um and really this isn't a few faith beliefs that i've seen but when the end is there and you know you've passed away well you know what will be remembered of you won't really be the body that you existed in anymore you know it would be you know how you made how people feel the, the the you know the character that you had um how much charity you gave things of that sort mm-hmm. um so I, I think really taking away from the 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 physical being, you know, yes, we exist in this body, but it, it really is a vehicle for us to get around. Yeah, yeah. I'm just picturing somebody's eulogy and <laughs> probably quite sadistically being like, "Yeah, banging bod." It's probably not going to happen, is it? It would be a lot lovelier for someone to say, "Oh, you know." all the personality traits they had and the nice things that they did um personally that's what I would like not just like you know mm-hmm. she was she was skinny or whatever um yeah. and something that I'm kind of interested from your perspective is so you mentioned that you're Muslim so um mm-hmm. I'm sure that religion means a lot to you when yeah. you're working with clients is it something that kind of you feel you need to align with a client with or 
you know, would it be difficult for you to work with somebody that maybe had a different religion or a different faith for you? Or, or not di- maybe difficult for them to work with you as well? Yeah. Um, so, such an interesting question, honestly. Mm. I think, uh, I think first and foremost, it's just in terms of how we, we train therapists and things. Faith and spirituality is often the, you know, the forgotten piece of the puzzle where, you know, even on training, we we don't really, like, actually focus on it where it's like, okay, you know, we'll do the lecture on working within diversity and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's everything but faith and spirituality. Um, You know, you'll get the race, the culture, the ethnicity and, you know, everything else but you know, faith and spirituality is the forgotten piece of that puzzle. Um, so I think for me, it's actually taken some time to acknowledge that piece of the puzzle in the room. Um, and I think only when I started to acknowledge it for myself, was I then more comfortable to acknowledge it for the person that was sitting in front of me. Um, so I do now, you know, in a first session ask, you know, what is your belief system? Right? And, and it doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to be someone that aligns with a particular faith or spiritual belief. But, you know, growing up, what were the beliefs around you, right? Where did your values come from? Um, and it could be as simple as, oh, my values aren't tied to faith or any kind of spiritual belief, but they're just tied to what, you know, mom and dad taught me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay as well. But I think when we don't explore that or when we don't make room for that, um, it is very hard to understand our clients, right? What is the lens that they uh, make decisions with? Uh, what is the lens that they use to, you know, to, to, to even, uh, I guess, differentiate between right and wrong? Um, so in in my work, honestly, I've, I haven't worked with too many clients who identify with really any uh, faith belief or faith tradition, I would say. Um, That's been quite rare in my work. Um, But I think that I wouldn't want to see that as black and white, where Mm -hmm. um, just because there is no alignment to a faith tradition, that then their beliefs don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in fact, sometimes exploring what those beliefs are, or um, you know, what they would like to actually subscribe to as well, can be really interesting for their recovery. Where um, you know, when, when we think of anxiety, right? Uh, what does your you know what what does your client believe? Do they believe that? life is predictable do they believe that someone else is in control do they believe a higher power is in control or is it science you know i think those can be really interesting conversations that can you know help the client themselves understand okay what is it that i actually want to believe and what is it that's actually going to help me make sense of it all because it can be quite overwhelming and confusing um you know especially if they've never had to explore that before yeah I think that I think that's such a good approach to it and that it doesn't 
it doesn't have to match you in terms of mm. what you believe or you know w- what your faith is but just addressing it is really mm. important and i think i think with regards to anything in terms of your beliefs like not necessarily like you know do you believe in god or that sort of thing mm. but where any of your beliefs have come from you know like yeah having a smaller body is better or, or whatever yeah. you may think it's really important to track that back to know where that comes from and to understand you know why that is so important to you as well so mm-hmm. I think like you said giving that the space that you need yeah. to be able to unpack that and sort of understand it feels really important and I do often think it's a really interesting conversation about like um, mm-hmm. whether your therapist you know has to align with your religion or yeah. has to align like I have a friend um who's polyamorous and she's also bisexual and for her mm. obviously it's, it's a different topic but for her she didn't feel that she could have a therapist that wasn't also bisexual and polyamorous right. because she felt like that was such a big part of her that it needed to be understood yeah. and so I think that's very similar in a sense to religion and things like that in that because it is such a big part of you and makes yeah. up such a big part of your beliefs you may feel like if you don't have somebody that aligns with that religion they're going to be missing out a lot of things um yeah yeah so I do think it's an interesting one but equally like you said it's not necessarily black and white and I don't think that you know you could say just because you follow a certain religion your therapist should too but equally yeah. I don't think that you can say well you don't need to have a therapist that follows the same religion mm. as you because I think it, it massively depends on the choice of the person. Absolutely, absolutely. It is, um, you know, you know, client autonomy is, is a very important ethical principle. Um, I think it can be quite interesting, though, you know, the choices that we make. Um, you know, the, the word we use there is cultural closeness. So some people might actively opt for um a therapist that is perhaps of the same faith as them you know for that understanding and some people might actively opt for a therapist that you know is not of the same faith of them, as them or not of the same culture as them or and and i think there are so many layers to that as well um to, to be very honest with you i i have had uh you know i've so when I was on training you know you would receive um, an assessment and you would be asked okay you know this is the client that you're allocated to you know I've had experiences where a client wouldn't want to see me um, and again that's completely okay that's their choice because of um, the cultural closeness Um, and I think it's very important then for the therapist that they do end up seeing to identify what that's really about um you know it's we we are a product of our you know our genetics and our experiences and sometimes our experiences you know can can really affect the lens that we see people with um so uh and and and, you know you you'll see this in day-to-day life not just in therapy but um you know as you go through life there will be people who will remind you of certain people um and that can be like a positive memory and that can be a not so positive one as well and it's like okay but what's really going on for me um so therapy is very interesting place to explore you know why we might steer towards or away from cultural closeness 
yeah absolutely i think that's a really interesting thing and like you've just said there i would question if it was that something felt too close culturally like why is that something that you're worried to go near um like what's that bringing up for you and and whether you decide to then go with that therapist to address that or with the therapist that maybe feels more appropriate to you then address that with them in terms of why didn't I feel like I could do that um yeah I think that's a very interesting perspective but it does make me think maybe this is a whole different conversation um sort of I guess about like the racial element of that and in terms of if you know if I guess what I'm saying is where do you draw the line and maybe this is down to the individual person as well but let's say somebody didn't want to work with somebody based on the stigmas or belief that they had around their race or their culture Mm -hmm. if they're coming for eating disorder support would you say that that's the time to unpack that or is that a kind of completely separate thing I think you know as I said at the beginning like you know the client is in the driver's seat for the process at least you know for for me um I also think that you know it's sometimes you know you you have to really think of whether the client is ready to to explore that you know we we all have our biases we all I, I don't think anyone is completely free of prejudice um you know we're human um but also if you're you know if as the therapist you're not really making for a safe environment for them to explore why they might have those beliefs and from where they you know where they come from i think you're doing a disservice to the client mm. um you know, be, a, a client is only going to open up when they feel safe. But if you're going to question them on their beliefs in a way that's, uh, you know, it, it can be quite, uh, you know, just kind of jarring for them. I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think it's doing anyone any favors. But um, Certainly, therapy would be a great place to explore why one might have those beliefs, um, but it's it's about timing. Um, yeah. You know, when when does it actually feel right to go in that direction? Um, for me personally, every four to six sessions, I have a review session where um, I actually do ask my client very openly, and this isn't common practice, but this is something I. Um, you know, I learned from kind of additional supervision where I do ask my client, you know, what is it like for you to have a therapist that uh, is a woman? What is it like for you to have a therapist that is um, of a different ethnic background to you or, you know, things of that sort? Uh, it's not common practice. And I think it can be really, um, I, I think it, it can put clients it can make clients feel like they're kind of uh, put on the spot, uh, but I do prepare them for that. I always say, you know, we're going to process our similarities and our differences in the next session. You know, let's think about that because there are things about our identity that will always impact the therapeutic process. Um, 
so for me, I always hear from a lot of clients, oh, it's really nice to have someone, especially from young people, it's nice to have someone that's closer to me in age because I feel like you might understand me more. Um, or, you know, I've, I've heard sometimes from clients that it's nice that you're from a different background because at least you can see what this, you know, you know what this might look like from the outside rather than from mm-hmm. in it where you know some things can feel quite normalized when you're within the culture mm-hmm. but when you're outside of it you can see you know what just might feel a bit off i really like that actually because i think that like you've just said there that things can almost become normalized and so mm-hmm. if there is something about that relationship that you develop with your therapist that is making you hold something back it could just kind of become you know you don't really realize it anymore so to have that space to reflect and to think is the fact that you know our gender is the same or our gender is different or that our faith is different or whatever are any of these factors making you hold back things because it definitely could um and I think often you know maybe the idea in your head of somebody that's like you know the ideal therapist for you when you're actually Mm -hmm. working with them could be off um and I remember I started with a therapist uh, a while back and um you know where something just doesn't feel right and then I was like mm-hmm. I'm not being completely honest here and yeah. I just rather than saying oh you know it's my problem it was like no sometimes the therapeutic relationship isn't isn't yeah. right and it's really important to have that reflection for sure absolutely um I had uh, one of my supervisors say uh, once, and I thought it was really inappropriate at the time, but now I can laugh it off. And she said, finding a therapist is like dating. You have to find the right mm. fit. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, at the end of the day, it is a relationship, uh, not similar to dating, but, <laughs> but it is a relationship. And yeah, you know, it, it, it takes kind of that, that flick to, to feel like you can actually be vulnerable with that person. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh And thank you so much for the insights that you've given us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, Where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, You can find me on Instagram. That's the main platform that I'm on. Uh, It's at Therapy with Manal. Um, And, you know, my email's there. Uh, Other ways to reach me are all there. Uh, but it's honestly been such a great conversation thank you so much uh yeah I always find that you know I I think the more we speak about things like this it helps you know it helps me reflect as well on you know Mm -hmm. what it is that kind of works within the therapy room what doesn't and um yeah just just things that I would want to you know do more of but that's amazing thank you so much yeah yeah no, it's actually, it's actually been such a pleasure. And I think for me, it's so nice because it's not something that I have experience of. And so it really broadens my kind of thought about eating disorders and how they can mm. develop and, and what can be supportive for people. So, yeah, it's been really lovely to chat to mm. you. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.